Hello and welcome back to Don't Depend on Daddy, the podcast. My name is Michaela. I am your host. And this week we are doing a full blown Q&A episode. I feel like this is fairly overdue. I used to do Q&As every single month, but I recently posted a question box on my Instagram story and I actually got a ton of really great questions. And the challenge with Q and A's on Instagram is that like when you answer so many questions, your Instagram story just becomes so incredibly long. So we're gonna be answering a lot of the questions here as well. I'm gonna go through three separate categories in order. First, personal finance, second business, and third, some personal questions that I've been getting a lot. I decided I'll just answer them and I'll be as honest and truthful as I possibly can. Before we get into it, as usual, we are going to be going through all of our housekeeping. So first things first, as always, you can get $10 off the personal finance dashboard using the code podcast one. If you have not ordered own your money, I'm going to say it again. What the hell are you doing? Go order own your money. My debut book, it's practical strategies to budget better, earn more and reach your six figure savings goals. It's a wonderful book. There are thousands and thousands of people who are reading it. I actually recently went to Barnes and Noble in Pasadena, where that book was originally stocked and it was all sold out. So I love to see that. And yeah, go order that if you haven't. And the last piece of housekeeping here is to leave me a review. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you've liked my recent episodes since coming back from the hiatus, if you are new here and you haven't left me a review, please leave me leave me a review. Follow me on Spotify. Hit that five-star button. If you're feeling frisky, you can, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Send me a DM. Let me know how you're enjoying the podcast. If you have any feedback, I would absolutely love to hear it. I said this last week, but I've really been enjoying lately podcasting without the pressure of video. I feel like since I'm not doing video, I'm able to just spend a little bit more time on prep and quality of the podcast. And also I feel a lot more comfortable sharing more not being on video. So if you are enjoying that or are noticing a difference, just leave me a review and let me know. It would mean a lot. Now we're going to move into the own your money review of the week. So if you want to be featured, make sure you go leave me a review for own your money on Amazon. I've said this before too, I think in prior episodes, pre hiatus, but leaving reviews for people on books, podcasts, any creators that you really like and enjoy and follow and consume their content is such an important and easy thing to do to support them for free. So if you like my book and you haven't left me a review, it really would mean the world to me to do so. It helps so much, especially on Amazon with like their algorithm and pushing the book and all of that kind of stuff. So leave me a review if you haven't yet. This review is from Kimberly Wazelensky. She and I have actually been in touch via Instagram DM and email for quite some time. So thank you, Kim, for leaving me this review if you're listening. She said, five stars, best book I have read for beginners. This is honestly the best book for people beginning to understand financial principles. I wish I had this book when I first got out of college. It's an easy read with great action steps at the end of each chapter. I really appreciate the approach Michaela has taken to have an intimate knowledge of your finances. Many other creators or authors think spreadsheets or an app are overrated, but I personally agree that it is the only way to actually know what's going on. 10 out of 10 read, even if you're advanced in your understanding of personal finances, it's a good book to read and then give as a gift. The book is also aesthetically pleasing with great graphics. Thank you, Kim, for leaving such a lovely review and for being so detailed and thoughtful in that. I really do, I mean, obviously I agree with this, but I like that she pointed it out that 
spreadsheets are really important and having, I mean, or just like some sort of tool really to manage your budget. I think again, and I, maybe this will become a theme that I talk about every week. What differentiates me from other finance creators is I feel like a lot of finance creators say budgeting is overrated and like budgets are dead and they're not a good use of time. And you know, they can do all of these things without following a budget. And while I can appreciate that sentiment for sure, I just think if you're starting out or you're repairing your relationship with your finances or you have financial goals you're working towards or you just want to feel financially organized, you need a budget. Like it's a helpful tool to have. It isn't something that should feel gross and icky. And if you have a tool, if you have the right approach, if you have goals you're working towards and you just aren't making it a bigger deal than it needs to be, a budget is a really valuable thing that really shouldn't be adding any negativity into your life. Like it's a neutral tool that puts you in the driver's seat of your finances. So I've reached a point where now when I see anybody talking about personal finance who says budgeting is overrated, like I immediately unfollow, stop consuming their content and don't engage because I think that's actually to the point now, I feel like that's a really toxic advice especially in the world we live in today. I also think it's tone deaf and incredibly privileged. And I'm not going to sit here and say, I don't come from any privilege at all, but I'm also not going to sit here and say that I can go about and exist in my life and do all the things I want to do if I didn't have a budget and didn't consistently stick to my budget. So I just really, really, really don't like that advice. And I like that you pointed that out. So thank you, Kim, again, for leaving that review. And as a reminder, go leave me a review if you haven't yet. Now I'm gonna skip the life update today because I actually think I have like 20 questions here that I wanna get through, if not more, and I don't want this episode to be two hours long. So I'll give you guys an overdue life update, I guess, next time or the time after. But like I said, we're gonna go through three main sections today for Q&A to keep things organized. We're gonna start with personal finances. It looks like I have eight questions there. Then we're going to do some business side hustle questions. There are five questions there. And then I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight personal questions. So we've got a lot of questions today. So let's just kick it off. First things first, personal finance. Question number one, what are your thoughts on Gen Z spending habits? I picked this question specifically because I think that Gen Z as a whole is really changing the tune of money and working and all of that kind of stuff that all sort of like feeds together. My initial thought when I read this question was I really think that Gen Z is kind of like, to a degree, a much more entitled generation than the generations that precede them, like millennials and whatnot. But I do think objectively, as a society, we don't give Gen Z enough credit for the way that they are now approaching their finances. I think the like boomer perspective that young people don't work hard and they can't afford to do things because they're all irresponsible, lazy stacks of shit is kind of a big, huge problem because I don't think that Gen Z is lazy at all. I think they're just challenging cultural norms and that you know makes boomers uncomfortable. I do think that the way that Gen Z spends their money is obviously much different than how millennials spend their money because Gen Z grew up on the internet. And 
a huge part of their day is being on social media and being chronically online, essentially. So they're always seeing what other people are wearing, doing, buying, enjoying, experiencing. And as a result, they're much more influenced by seeing that. Whereas even my age, like I'm 28, so I'm kind of on the cusp of millennial. I think I fall into that like zillennial kind of group where it's We're not really millennials, but we're also not really Gen Z. We're in the middle because I was born in 1995. And I see with, you know, growing up in my time, I guess, we didn't have Instagram until my senior year of high school. Like we were not on social media in the same way. We were on Facebook, but at the time, Facebook, there weren't ads. It wasn't like I was seeing what other people were buying. If we wanted to buy clothes, we went to the mall. It wasn't like click the link in my bio to go shop my outfit. It was just a very, very, very different time. And so I I empathize with Gen Z just because even as an older person, I guess, it is difficult to pick and choose what to spend money on and navigate what to spend money on and find alignment in how you spend your money when you're constantly inundated with advertisements and seeing how good other people look or what other people are doing or how much everybody else is enjoying their lives. So I think that's an issue that Gen Z is going to need to continue to battle. And then beyond that, you know, these um, services like Afterpay and Klarna and all of that kind of stuff have become much more normal. And I think that perpetuates unhealthy spending habits. But on the flip side of that, I think Gen Z is also very curious about financial literacy because they have such access to the internet. And that's something that I admire because now they're seeing like, oh, there are other ways to make money. There are ways that I can learn about how to spend and use my money and save my money and become financially literate and ultimately financially free without needing to work for 45 years which again, was not something that was accessible even in the years where I graduated college. Break Your Budget wouldn't exist if that was something that was accessible when I first got out of school and was starting to like function as an adult. So I think we need to give Gen Z more credit, but obviously there are things that they need to work on and that just comes with time, I feel like, and maturing and learning about yourself, which people can tell you about, but you really do have to learn that on your own. Next question, my favorite credit cards lately. I am a Chase Sapphire Preferred girl. I really only use the Chase Sapphire Preferred. I also have a United Mileage Plus card that I use to book travel, but I would say I put like 80% of my expenses on my Chase Sapphire and then the other 20% or so, give or take, on my United Mileage Plus card. So like if I'm booking flights home for the holidays or just flights home in general, I'm putting them on my United card. I'm trying to get status with United. And those are the only two cards that I use. I very, very occasionally use my debit card, but I would say I use my debit card like once every two months. So almost never. Next question is, can you share your monthly budget breakdown? And yes, I am happy to do that. I do feel like I share this a lot. Maybe I just don't go into all of the details, but looking at my PFD, which as a reminder, you can get $10 off using the code podcast one. This year, my budget has been a little bit wonky or at least very different than what I originally planned because I moved back in March. So, and I didn't go into the year thinking I was gonna be moving in March. I figured it was on the agenda for the year, but I didn't really plan for it to be that soon. And then obviously once you move, like you're just spending more money. So I would say on average this year, I've been spending anywhere between five to six K. And that's just because every month I've had to buy, you know, like a new piece of furniture or something for my apartment, 
which I'm not complaining about. Like that's definitely higher than where it was before I moved and where I would like it to be in perpetuity. But at the same time, I moved into this apartment and I didn't have any furniture besides like my bedroom furniture. So I had to buy it and I like to make my house a home. So that is kind of like what's been, you know, messing up my budget lately. But from a breakdown standpoint, I usually spend on, and I'm literally looking at my PFD right now to tell you this, I usually spend on average for my essential expenses anywhere between 34 to 3,600 and 2,700 of that is my rent. And then on average, I'm spending like 50 to $100 on utilities every two months because my internet is a business expense, so I don't count that. And my gas bill is usually like $7 and my electricity bill is like, $100 every two months or so. Grocery, about $250. Insurance, I pay car insurance and renter's insurance. That's about $150. Gas, I budget $100 to $150 per month. Personal care is like $50 to $100. Like if I need to get stuff from CVS and whatnot. Subscriptions, I spend $10 on Spotify and $19 on my Pilates app. And then for my non-essentials, these also fluctuate, but I would say excluding moving stuff around a thousand dollars per month or like if I do shopping maybe a little bit more I would say 1500 is probably a good average and with moving it's been closer to like 2000 or so because again yeah I've just had to buy like stuff for my apartment and it almost feels like a never-ending thing so that's generally how I spend my money um, restaurants around 300 to 400 again depends on the month shopping 100 to three or 400 also depends on the month self-maintenance I do 100 to 120 a month because I always get uh, my eyebrows in a Brazilian wax and then sometimes I get a pedicure Uber's parking I budget 50 ish or so for that coffee 50 gifts rarely more than like 50 and that's not even every month and then usually like a hundred dollars for miscellaneous and then if I am traveling I'll plug some money in there. And then also more recently, I talked about this in the last episode, but I do 160 for exercise. That's my class pass membership. So that's my budget breakdown and my income fluctuates. So like, I can't really give you a sense of that um, because every month it's different. And I also just pull money out of my business account for my savings now. Like I don't really plan that in the same way that I used to just because again, my income fluctuates so dramatically every month. Next question, how to create savings you don't constantly dip into? Open a high yield savings account and keep that money completely separate from your checking account and also give yourself a goal that you're working towards. I think the reason why people treat or dip into their savings is because they're treating their savings like whatever money's left over. And so let's say you have $2,000 in your checking account and you spent 1,500 that month and you have 500 left over. It's like, okay, well I saved air quote $500, but I'm just gonna use that for something else because it's there and accessible. Move that money into a separate account with a goal. I use Ally for my savings account or my high yield savings account because there's buckets and you can set goals for those buckets. It just makes it really easy to like digital, digitally organize your savings goals. So if you don't have that, you need to create that if that's something that you struggle with. It's something you should be doing anyways. How to start eating cheaper. I struggle with my grocery budget and I hate to go grocery shopping, but restaurants are so expensive. Well, if you're spending all your money on restaurants, obviously it's going to be expensive. If you wanna start eating cheaper, I usually spend 250 a month on groceries. I mean, I have a couple of tips for you here. 
First, I eat a plant-based diet at home. So I'm a vegetarian overall. I've been vegan for like five years. I'm becoming a little bit more flexible on that, but at home, I don't cook with any animal products. I don't buy them, I don't use them, and I don't eat them. And that obviously impacts my grocery budget dramatically because meat and cheese and eggs are all very, very, very expensive. But on top of that, I feel like I'm pretty careful about my grocery budget overall. I tend to shop the perimeters of the store. I really try to limit food waste. If I'm you know, running low on something or I find that veggies are turning, I'll, I'll, chop, the, I'll chop them up and I'll put them in the freezer that kind of stuff, like I very rarely throw food away. Even today, like last week I cooked a pot of like white beans and I had some left over. I just put them in the freezer and I'll throw those in like a soup or something in the next couple of weeks. So I do a lot of freezing whenever I have leftover foods. I also always go to the store with a list. I usually prepare two to three recipes a week that I'm shopping for and I try to use ingredients up in my pantry. So like For example, this week I wanted to do a chili and I had some black beans and stuff that I wanted to use up and just like miscellaneous things. So when I went to the store, I only bought the ingredients that I needed to make sure that recipe was complete. So I'm using stuff that's in my pantry and I'm also creating a very specified list. And obviously that keeps your grocery bill lower when you're not buying things that you don't need. The other thing too is shopping for produce loose. I only buy loose produce. I don't really buy like prepackaged produce because I never eat it all. So like if I'm going to buy broccoli or something, I'll buy like one crown of broccoli instead of buying all of the chopped up broccoli that I'm not going to use. So that's like a pretty easy way to keep your bill a little bit lower. And yeah, those are like my best tips, I feel like for eating cheaper. It takes some time to find your rhythm, I guess, when it comes to going to the grocery store, meal prepping and all that kind of stuff, especially if you're cooking for one. Next question, what do you do when you go over budget? I love this question because the theme of this year for me has been going over budget. I feel like my spending lately has just not gone to plan at all this year for a couple of reasons. One, like I mentioned, being because I moved. The other being because I've really just been leaning into enjoying my life. Like I'm feeling pretty comfortable with my savings and stuff. And you know, my business is doing well. It can always be doing better. Like I'm always thinking about ways to bring in additional income, but I've just been a lot more lenient this year. And I think that sort of stems from a few reasons. One, I want to enjoy my life. Two, I'm 28. So like there are certain luxuries that I'd like to be able to have. And three, I'm not really spending my money on traveling or getting married or kids or anything. So like I have money that I can spend on enriching my life. And that's sort of the mindset or mentality, I guess, that I've been using this year. But, you know, as a result of that, I've definitely been spending a little bit more than I'm honestly super comfortable with on material things like apartment stuff and all of that. And I've been over budget or over my plan, I guess, by like $500 to $1,000 consistently now for a couple of months in a row. And transparently, it really just boils down to making adjustments as you go. Like as I'm going throughout my month and I'm looking at the way I'm spending my money, if I see, okay, I'm gonna be buying something for my apartment or I did just buy something for my apartment, then I'll just adjust my budget accordingly. I'll you know, take money out of certain categories. I'll be a lot more cognizant of plans on the fly, if that makes sense. I'll do my best to cook at home and not eat out. I won't go shopping. Like I just adjust other areas of my budget and I think that's really the only way to mitigate it. I mean, if there are months where you do go over budget and it's something that was within your control and just has to do with 
impulse shopping or not being clear on your values, I would really challenge you to be in the habit of tracking your expenses and be really clear on how you feel when you spend money so that you can change your behavior. But if you've been over budget just because of the season of life you're in, I challenge you to just be more realistic with your budget. I think people look for all of these different tips and hacks to make their budget better or to balance their budget or to mediate overspending or something. And you know, if you overspend, you overspend and it doesn't need to be a bigger deal than it is. You can't change it if it's something you can't return or if it's something that you needed, it just is what it is. Life costs money, life is expensive. It's gonna keep getting expensive. So that's just a, a facet of existing at this point. You can't change what you did in the past, but what you can do is change your behavior going forward. And so as I've continued to spend a little bit more money than I'm, again, obviously comfortable with, I'm just being more cognizant of my day-to-day decisions. And I'm letting things process a little bit more before hitting buy or spending something. Like I have a running list of things that I need. I have a running list of things that I want. And if I see something that I want, I don't buy it right away. I let it sit for 28 or for 24 to 48 hours. And if I'm still thinking about it and I still want it just as badly, I'll buy it and I'll make the adjustments as needed in my spending otherwise. But if I don't want it that badly anymore, or I'm not loving it or it's not aligned, I won't buy it. That And that's the beauty of like giving yourself a moment to breathe, having a plan, knowing where your money is going so you can make better decisions as they come up throughout your life as they will. Next question, at what point should I stop maxing out my 401k? I'll have more than I need by 65. Should I shift to a brokerage account? I love this question so much because I don't think it's talked about at all. And I think a lot of finance creators and people who talk about personal finances always talk about maxing out your retirement accounts before moving on to anything else. And I won't say that I've never said this because I for sure have, but as I've you know, not only begun to make a little bit more money where I'm able to max out my retirement accounts, but also to a point where I have other financial goals and have money that I wanna access before I retire, I really do see the value in a brokerage account. And people get afraid of brokerage accounts because it's like, oh, you're gonna pay taxes on the gains and it's not tax optimized and whatever. And I see that. But at the same time, a brokerage account serves a purpose in your broader financial plan. And when you put money into a retirement account, that money is is not your money until you retire, which is a very, very long time away. So you need to make sure that you are also saving money to access throughout your life, which is why a brokerage account is important. So, you know, I put money into my retirement accounts. I max out my retirement accounts for tax purposes, but I'm also investing through a brokerage account because at some point, like, I'm gonna wanna buy a house. I don't know when that's going to be. That could be five years from now, 10 years from now, whenever, but I'm not gonna put that money in a savings account because I don't think it's gonna be in the extreme near term. And I'd like that money to be accessible to me, so I'm also not gonna put it in a retirement account. So I think really the gauge that you have to do is first understand what's your amount of money that you have for discretionary savings. So that would be like, how much money do you have available to put across your various savings and investing goals? And then think about what those goals are and pull up a compound interest calculator and do a little bit of math. So maybe you're maxing out your 401k, but you could reach your retirement goals by putting half of that amount into your 401k by the time you turn 65 or even exceed your retirement goals by that point then that other you know, 10K that you would be putting in your 401k, you might wanna put into a brokerage account instead. There's no issue with doing that. So I think it's really just evaluating 
what's your retirement number that you want? You know, conventional advice is like, I think two to 3 million or so. I honestly think, you know, by the time we get there, it's probably going to be a little bit more, but again, I can't predict the future. I also have no idea what that could look like. And transparently, anybody who says they have an idea of what that could look like is, you know, talking out of their ass. Nobody knows what it's going to look like in 30 or 40 years. So I would just keep putting as much as you can in there to reach that three to four million threshold. You can always adjust. That's the other thing is like if you put 10K in this year and you something changes next year, you can put the maximum amount in next year. Nothing has to be finite and concrete when it comes to your money and put some money in your brokerage account and like don't overthink it or boil the ocean when it comes to this kind of stuff. I think finding a balance is key. I generally am putting, I would say like 60% of my investments in my retirement account and about 40% into a brokerage account. Next question, and this is the last money question, is how do I give myself permission to spend money? I have a hard time not feeling guilty. This is a great question because this is something that I've struggled with a lot and I talk about it in Own Your Money if you want to hear my full story. But the way that I rectified this tactically was building a budget. And I know I sound like a brokered record, but I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to see where your money is going. Because what created the freedom for me to spend was seeing how much money I had available to me to spend on those things and sort of letting myself spend however I wanted within those parameters. So I have about $1,200 to $1,500, give or take, that I spend on non-essentials. And I really spend that money however I want. You know, sometimes that's $600 on restaurants because we have birthdays and activities. Sometimes that's $600 on shopping because I want to buy some new things. And just knowing that number and knowing that as sort of my cap and spending however I want within that has been really freeing for me. So I would build out a zero-based three-bucket budget. I talk about that again at length in my book. I would identify how much you have for non-essentials and I would really make sure that you are spending that money on things that add value to your life. Because a lot of times too, people have plenty of discretionary cash that they're spending on things that they either don't value or things that their friends want them to spend on or things that they feel like they should be spending their money on when those are things that don't actually make them happy. So for me, things that I enjoy spending my money on, I love spending money on Pilates in my class pass. I talk about this all the time. I love spending money on coffee. I talk about that all the time. I love spending money on like lunches out or day, daily activities. I love spending my money on a little treat if I'm going somewhere, like if I'm going to Malibu for a hike and we stop at the Country Mart, like maybe I wanna buy myself a little trinket or I wanna buy lunch or something or I wanna splurge and get an acai bowl from Sun Life or whatever. Like I just love spending my money that way more so than I enjoy spending my money on alcohol or going out to the bars or Ubers and that kind of thing. So I align my money accordingly and I make adjustments to those other areas of my life. So for example, if I'm gonna go out, which I still do often, I only have one drink and I drive because I'm not drunk and it gives me a limit. I can't spend money on alcohol because I'm driving and I'm not spending money on Ubers because I'm driving my own car. And it also, you know, makes me more responsible at night. It puts me in control of the situation. It helps alleviate not being hungover the next day and wasting my day. Like that's all in alignment to how I feel, but it still lets me be social because I'm going and I'm seeing my friends, but I have a cutoff point because I'm not getting drunk. So like at some point it's not fun. So it's just thinking about what are the things that are important to you? What are the experiences that are important to you? And how can you spend your money in alignment with that and as a tool to enhance and enrich your life? So that's my best advice there. You really got to have a budget though, if you don't have one. 
Okay, those are the finance questions. We are now gonna move into some business questions. First being, how do I stay motivated being self-employed and how do I get out of ruts? I've been in a lot of ruts this year. I've also talked about this fairly candidly on my Instagram and like in some of my vlogs and stuff. Staying motivated when you're self-employed is really challenging. I'm actually having a hard time even today staying motivated just because like I have some deadlines, but they're not urgent. I'm having like a slow email day and it's Monday. So I'm kind of like, it's early in the week. Like I feel like I have a lot of time and it can be hard to stay on a schedule, especially when you're holding yourself accountable. I think the one thing that keeps me the most motivated is the financial aspect of it because like I gotta be working so that I can pay my bills. And obviously I have a pretty large buffer, so there's no imminent threat for me to not be able to like pay my rent or anything. But I have financial goals that I wanna reach. I have revenue goals that I wanna reach and that is really the biggest motivator for me. Also, I wanna feel like I have purpose and that I'm helping people and that keeps me motivated as well. From a tactical standpoint, I use a daily planner, a weekly planner, and that keeps me like on track. I use Notion to manage all my business stuff and then like my day-to-day planning. I use the Ultimate Digital Planner on my iPad. That's available, always linked in my bio. I made it myself just because I couldn't find a planner that worked for me. So that's like another thing that if you struggle with planning, definitely check that out. You can use it on your iPad if you have one or any tablet, but you can also just print it out. So that's how I plan my day to day. And I find that like sitting down and planning out my time is really motivating. It gives me daily goals to work towards and all of those ladder up to my monthly goals. I plan out all of my business stuff. In Notion, I set monthly goals. I look at them every Monday morning or every Monday so that I can make sure that what I'm working on that week is aligned with those monthly goals. So really it's all about creating systems that work for you and that help get you to your end goal, which you need to get clear on. I would say it's taken me like over a year to get to a point where I feel like I have a business system that works for me, but I'm also always open to changing it. I feel like I'm always learning about myself and how I operate. So it does change often, I would say. But I think to be self-employed, you have to have a degree of self-discipline, a pretty high degree of self-discipline compared to most other people. And that's not something that can be taught. That's something that you have to have. I think that's a big differentiator between entrepreneurs and people who make self-employment and entrepreneurship work compared to people who are in a corporate job. And I'm not saying that as a better or worse kind of situation. I'm just saying like, if you're self-employed, you are more motivated than the average person because you have to be in order to keep the lights on in your business. Lots of people never get out of corporate that want to, because they don't have just like the internal self-discipline that you need. And yeah, so if you're not already inherently self-disciplined, I don't really have advice there. The next question here is, how did I find my business coach and what was the cost? So my business coach, I worked with Melanie Aubert. Her Instagram handle is like Aubert Melanie, I think, or it's Aubert Melanie. Um, If you go to my Instagram and look at my following, I follow her. There aren't a lot of, I don't follow a lot of people, so it shouldn't be that hard to find. And I found her on Instagram, actually. When I first started on Instagram, I was actively looking for a business coach. So like, I think at one time I responded to one of her D or one of her Instagram stories, like asking her a question about her skincare routine. And I found out that she was like a business coach or whatever. We got to talking, it worked out. I worked with her for three months on a three month retainer and I spent $4,000 total. She and I did like a weekly one-on-one and I credit all of Break Your Budget's initial success to her. She helped me get my first clients. She was one of my first paying clients. 
and she's just so wonderful and so motivating and she helped me learn about social media and you know get clear on my goals and get clear on what break your budget was and I figured a lot out on my own but she was really that person that helped me at the beginning get started and I do think that if you are somebody who wants to get a business off the ground and you really want to get started Having a coach or having a mentor is like one of the most important, most valuable things you can have for a few reasons. One, because you want to work with someone who's done it before, who knows what they're talking about and who has advice or wisdom or guidance to give you in a tactical way. But two, it really boils down to the accountability. Like if I didn't have a weekly call with her, it would have been a lot easier for me to just say, oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I don't need to do this today. Like she would give me weekly action items that I had to do before our following call where we would talk about them. Like the accountability piece was major. And essentially because I spent that money, I was like, okay, I'm doing this. Like I want to make this money back. I want to make more back. And I did as a result of spending that. It took a while, but like I got there within six months. Whereas I feel like sometimes people will just try to do it on their own. They don't see initial success. They get to a point where like, They realize there's so many things to do and they don't know what to do, so they just give up. And that's actually, you know, as I talk about this, one of the reasons why I've started to do side hustle coaching slash consulting slash mentorship. I call it business mentorship. I actually have two clients for September. I'm taking three clients in October. I do have a wait list for November. So if you're interested in that, just send me a DM saying mentor and I will send it to you. But really... I want to be that person for other people. I want to be um, there for you to impart my guidance on all of the things that's worked for me. I feel like I've learned so much from starting my business and I'm writing an entire book about this as well coming out next year. So I don't know. I just feel like from doing Break Your Budget for so long, I've learned a lot about how to start and scale an online business and I want to share that with people. And Melanie was really one of my initial motivators for that. I don't think she does one-on-one coaching in the same way that she used to because I did do this with her in 2019. So that was like four years ago. But she does offer like programs and masterminds and like workshops and all that kind of stuff. So definitely toss her a follow. Go look at what she has if you are interested in that. But also send me a DM too. Next question, where to start with my side hustle? So this is something that I've actually was working on with one of my clients currently who is starting like a financial organization for small business type of business to do all of the things that like creative freelancers don't want to do when it comes to workflow, financial workflow, invoicing, all of that kind of stuff. And the first two weeks of working together, we've really just spent time getting clear on who she's helping, what the process is, and what her visions and goals are. And I think that is a step that a lot of people don't spend enough time on. Like you can't build a business if you don't even know what you're trying to do. And I do see a lot of advice saying just like take action and you'll figure it out as you go. And I respect that advice and I think it's really important and valuable because you do need to be taking action and figuring things out as you go. That's part of the whole process. But you also need to get really, really clear on who your ideal client is, what are the types of services that you know you can offer? And if you were to book a client for a service right now, what is the process you would take them through? And that takes time. And sometimes that takes an additional perspective. And she actually told me that like the calls that we had had been so helpful for just bouncing ideas off of and getting another line of sight into what she was thinking about doing, which again, you can't always do 
by yourself. So that's where I would say where to start with a side hustle. You have to be super, super clear on your vision and what you want to do and who you want to help because everything else, like starting on social media and creating packages and systems and pricing and all of that comes from knowing what you're offering, knowing who you're serving and knowing what your ultimate goal is, if that makes sense. This sort of pivots into the next question. How do you use social media for business? This is an entirely loaded question, which I could probably do a whole episode on. Essentially, I use social media for advertising my business. Yes, I work with brands and that does you know, work as like a revenue stream for me, of course. But I predominantly started my social media to advertise my own business. So selling templates, working with clients. I don't do budgeting consults anymore, but that is how I started with like a budgeting program. And how to start with this? First, you need to have a social media page that's like professional. And I would really say you need to start with educating your audience with no expectation in return of value. Like when I first started Break Your Budget, I was just talking about things that I was learning at work, things that I was learning in my own life. I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't trying to get anybody to pay me any money. Like I was sharing my journey. And that probably sounds like cliche advice, but it's cliche for a reason. Most people start social media just to educate and eventually it turns into something else. Social media is a really great tool for marketing your business because it's free, right? Like if you were to use or go buy like a TV ad or a radio ad or something. Um, in the past, you had to spend money to buy that ad space. Now you can just advertise for free and get organic reach. And yes, you can boost those posts, but a lot of times you can get the reach without having to spend any money if you make good content. And good content really stem stems from educating and teaching people and giving people value so that they trust you and know what you're saying and can learn something from you before they go pay you, right? So that's how I would start. I do think that this is a question that requires a full episode. So maybe I'll do a whole episode on that. And if you have specific questions about social media for business, send me a DM. My last business question here is balancing a nine to five with your side hustle. Do you have any tips? I have tons of tips for this because this was my reality for two and a half years. A couple of things right off the bat. First, you need to build time into your day specifically for your side hustle. You cannot treat your side hustle like a hobby. You have to treat it like a business from the get-go, even if you're not making money. So that means that for two hours a day, a couple days a week, you need to be putting time on your calendar specifically devoted to your side hustle. I used to do, my routine beforehand was, I would wake up in the morning, do my exercise, go to work, and then after work from like five to seven or six to eight, before COVID, I would just stay at my desk at the office and do side hustle stuff. After COVID, obviously I was at home, so I would sprinkle it throughout the day, but I would spend a total of two hours a day working on Break Your Budget and then sometimes even all weekend or at least one weekend day on Break Your Budget. It requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of energy and there will be a period of time where you're grinding a lot more than you think is necessary and that's just the way that it goes. Beyond that, I would really focus on setting a couple of goals every week and making sure that you accomplish those baseline goals. So what are your needle moving tasks that need to get done? That could be posting on social media three times a week, sending five outreach emails, you know, setting up your two client calls that you have. Like what are the things that need to keep the lights on and keep the needle moving with your side hustle and make sure you get those things done 
as soon as you can. And then also have a running list of nice to haves because your week is going to, your weeks are going to ebb and flow. Some weeks you're going to have more free time and more energy and other weeks you're not. So as long as you get those baseline things done, if you have more time and energy, you can go to the running list. And if you don't, that's okay. You got your baseline things done. So those are my best tips. I do actually have a whole podcast episode about this. A couple, if you scroll back, I did an episode with Aaron Confortini um, a couple of months ago, uh, back in like February. So a while ago now, six months ago. And she talked about this a lot because at the time she was also working a nine to five. And I've also answered this in a couple other Q and A's. So go back and listen to those Q and A's too. It will be in the title. Okay. Now we are moving into the last section of this Q and A, the personal section. So I've been getting a lot of questions about dating and like, what does my dating life look like? And how do I find the time to date? So I'm just going to answer these now. I alluded to this in last week's episode about hobbies, but I'm currently single. I've been single the entire time I've lived in LA. I have dated people for a few months here or there. I have not dated someone who I feel like is worth dating seriously. Like all of the people I've dated for like three months or four months have been fairly casual and I was the one to end it just because I didn't see it as someone who was like somebody who I would marry. And I'm not necessarily in a phase where I'm dating to marry. Like I don't want to put that pressure on it, but I'm not going to date someone who isn't someone I would consider marrying, if that makes sense. So I guess in a way I sort of am. I'm just not going to waste my time. So, I mean, I am actively dating. I've taken a little bit of a break over the summer. I wasn't really dating a ton during the summer. I have started to date again. And I would like to continue dating. I would like to be in a relationship, you know, within the next year. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. I would like for it to happen, but there's a degree of that that's outside of my control, you know? I've been on the apps. I'm really not enjoying the apps. I find that I end up going on dates from the apps with people who I'm not really interested in because you have no gauge of who they are before you actually get there. I don't know how people have been successful on the apps. I think the era of the apps has changed a lot, particularly in LA. Transparently, there's a lot of fucking weirdos on the apps I'm not interested in. I don't like opening them because it makes me depressed and feel like there aren't any good options out there, which I think is kind of what the apps are trying to do now to keep you on them, which is a shame. So yeah, the app dating has been really discouraging. I'm trying to go out more and meet more people in real life through like friends of friends. And how do I find the time to date? I make the time. Like if you want to date, you make the time. Anything that you prioritize, you'll make time for. That kind of question I, I'm answering because I think it's important to note that like if you want to do something, you need to create the time for it. It applies to any aspect of your life. And also like I just have time. I think there's an illusion online that I'm like incredibly busy 24 seven. Like I just work a normal amount of hours. I work, you know, if anything less than most people, like I've got plenty of time to date. So I just build it into my week. If I have a date scheduled or something, Uh, sometimes I have a date, sometimes I don't. Like there are weeks, weeks at a time where I'm not dating at all. And then there are some weeks where I have maybe one or two. And yeah, I mean, hopefully this fall going out more. I think with football season, it makes it a little bit easier to be going out during the daytime, which I think is the best time to meet someone through friends of friends, that kind of thing. But yeah, I've definitely been having a hard time meeting people. So that's a little bit discouraging, but we're trying to stay optimistic. So if you're in LA and you are also struggling to date, send me a DM, let me know. 
Um, but that is not an invitation for people to ask me out in the DMs. That does happen. I really fucking hate that, especially because there are people out there who are way too persistent, who have clearly not answered, who continue to ask me out. And I find that really disrespectful. So like, I can appreciate people shooting their shots in the DMs. If you do that one time and I don't answer, I did see it. I chose not to answer. So just leave it at that. Um, and yeah, that is all I have to say about that. Next question is, why did I leave corporate? I left corporate for a handful of reasons. Again, I have an entire podcast episode about this. If you scroll back why I left my corporate job, maybe I can do an updated one, um, but all of the information is pretty much the same. A couple of reasons. One, I was making more money doing Break Your Budget than I was from my corporate job. In 2021, I was making 90K at my corporate job. And in 2021, I made over six figures from Break Your Budget. I think I made like 120. So it didn't make any sense for me to continue working my corporate job um, for too much longer after that. Second, my manager disrespected me. My manager told me I was dumb, that I didn't understand financial concepts, and that even if I were to continue doing my job at or above the level I was at, I wouldn't get promoted or get a pay raise until the end of the year, if that. And when I asked for a plan and said and asked like, oh, if I do all of these things by the middle of the year, by like June timeframe, can I still get promoted? He said, no, I wouldn't be comfortable promoting you by then. And that's when I was like, okay, fuck this. So those were kind of like the biggest reasons. I had also talked to HR and asked them like, if I were to get promoted, like what is the ROI on that look like? What would my raise be? And they were like, if you're lucky, it'll be 10%. And I was just like, I'm wasting my time here. Like this is not for me. So I was actively looking for other jobs. I did actually get two job offers that were paying 120 plus equity and benefits and bonuses and all of that kind of stuff. So pretty comprehensive offers. And I just decided that my time was better spent working on Break Your Budget. And I think the ROI on that was pretty obvious and clear because I like 4X'd my corporate income in 2022. And I'm on track to do that again in 2023. So like, it, I'm just making much more money. I'm much happier doing this. And that's why I left my corporate job. I often talk about my negative experience in corporate because I personally had a negative experience in corporate. That does not mean that I think working in corporate sucks. I just, it just sucked for me. And yeah, so that's why I left. I hope to never go back. My mind is open. If I do ever have to go back, like I don't know what the future holds, but I feel like I would do actually anything in my power to avoid going back to a corporate job. Like that's a last resort. I would rather work like a service industry kind of job before going back to a corporate job. Next question, what are some of my hobbies? Go listen to last week's podcast episode about this, but really to sum it up right now, Pilates is a big hobby of mine. I go two to three times a week. I'm going tonight and I'm going on Thursday. Um, another one is my espresso machine. Somebody asked, is coffee a hobby? Yes, it is absolutely a hobby. I think people don't realize how complex and scientific espresso actually is. And I have a pretty basic machine, so like I'm not gonna sit here and be like, oh, I know so much about coffee. But I've learned a lot over the last few weeks. I'm very interested in it. I would love to read like a book about it. So if you have suggestions, let me know. But learning about coffee is a new hobby of mine. Um, what was my other hobby? Cooking, that's my other hobby, duh. I've been doing a lot more cooking lately, really enjoying that. And just in general, like adventuring, exploring LA, exploring California, spending more time out and about and taking advantage of 
my life here. Hiking now that the summer's kind of winding down is not as hot. In the summertime, going to the beach, like all of those things are hobbies. Having activities that you can do alone or with friends are hobbies. And I think it's so incredibly important to spend time, money, and energy on enriching your life and developing hobbies so that you are your own person regardless of your relationship status. I see a lot of people, including some of my friends who have been in relationships for a long time, gotten married in their 20s and like kind of young in my opinion and literally don't have any hobbies of their own. All of their hobbies are like their boyfriend, partner's, husband's hobbies that they've just glommed onto. I understand you, you know, build a life with someone and that's all good and great. And like I've said, I hope to do that. But you've got to have things you can do by yourself. And if you don't, you need to figure that out ASAP Rocky because you can be as secure as you want in your relationship. You never know what's going to happen. And you need to be able to have things that you can do alone, external of your partner, external of work to enrich who you are as a person. I feel so passionately about that. If you could not tell, it actually infuriates me when I see women specifically lose themselves in relationships and completely become reliant on a partner financially, emotionally, personally, like you've got, you can do that, but you've got to have something to fall back on. You have to, even if you're married, because again, you never know what life has in store for you. It could be a tragic scenario. I don't know. I don't want to wish that on anyone, but my point is like, fill your time with things that enrich your life that you want to do that aren't something you have to do with a partner or that you have to do related to work. Do things for you. Be an independent person. You can be independent in a relationship. And if you're not in a relationship, it's even more important to make sure that the time that you are using while you're single is to become the best version of you. I do think, and I see this again a lot with people my age and younger um, and people in my circle and stuff who like, think that the end goal is just being in a relationship. And once they're in a relationship, they don't have to do all of these things to better themselves. I think that's a load of crap. I do think that you just constantly need to be being the best version of yourself and a person can help you, but isn't going to fix you. And yeah, again, maybe that could be a whole podcast episode. I did do a whole podcast episode on my hobbies, but like literally if I were to send you a DM and ask you what your hobby was and you don't have one, that's embarrassing and go find one because you need to have one. You have to have a hobby outside of work and outside of your partner. Um, And yeah, again, I feel so strongly about that. We're going to move on or else I'm going to get down a rabbit hole. Next question. Am I trying to reach financial independence? No, I have no interest in the fire movement. I have no interest in like retiring early. I don't want to live my life on a stringent budget. I don't really have any interest in traveling the world or moving internationally or doing any of that. I've been everywhere that I really want to go. Um, I was very blessed and lucky that I got to travel a lot in high school and mostly through college studying abroad. I went all over Europe. I went to Asia. I've been to Africa. Like I've been to South America. I've been everywhere. Not everywhere, but I've been to a lot of places. As an adult, I don't have any interest in that currently. That could always change. Um, But right now, I don't really want to travel. And I I just find with the FIRE movement, like to reach it, people live on very, very stringent budgets for their entire lives to invest as much as they can. And then they reach the point that they hit FIRE and then they have to live on a very stringent budget beyond that. And like, I just don't want to live my life on a frugal budget. 
Obviously I have a budget so that I know how much money I'm spending and where it's going, but I would definitely say I'm not super stringent and frugal. I'm financially conscious, but I want to live a nice life. Like I want to have nice things. I want to live in a nice home. I want to be able to buy stuff and not have to worry about it. And that means that I'm going to have to work. And also I feel like if I wasn't working, like I would get bored. I have hobbies. You all know that. But like, I, I just feel like as a person, I need to be working towards something. I would love to be in a scenario where I'm work optional and can work on only things that I want when I want for fun because I have the money to exist and like I don't necessarily have to make money but I definitely don't see myself being one of those people who's like trying to reach a specific fire number and for those of you who don't know fire is financial independence retire early and the general gist of that is people live like a very stringent life cycle lifestyle to invest as much as they can so that they can retire by their fire number or fire age which is somewhere between like 35 and 45 I mean, if I continue on the path that I'm on now and I get married to someone, hopefully, like I probably won't have to work until I'm 65. But again, I don't know what life has in store for me. I'm not going to pretend to know what life has in store for me either. And I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I feel very lucky to be on the path that I'm currently on. And yeah, hopefully that answers the question. But the TLDR is no, I don't have any plans to do fire financial independence in the traditional sense of what it actually means how do i make time for life outside of a job um this was a question that was really around someone who said that they are working like 12 hour days in finance and have a really hard time prioritizing personal stuff outside of work and my original or i guess tough love answer to this question would be make the time my empathetic understanding answer to this question is I understand how difficult it can be to be early in your career and prioritize work and life especially when you're making money at work or you really want to set the foundation for your career there are times where you're going to go through seasons in your career where you're just working a ton and you do have to prioritize your job above other things and that's okay I think being realistic about that is great and You know, you do also though have to think about your basic needs. So if you're working 12 hours a day, 12 hours a day, five days a week, and even weekends, which does happen, especially if you work in a finance job like banking, or if you work in consulting or something similar to that, and maybe a different line of work, I understand how difficult that can be. It really boils down to setting some boundaries. So like letting your manager know that you are unwell and need to take a step away from your computer or being... I think open and communicative about the hours where you can reasonably respond or if you have plans on the weekend, for example, and you get a message, you have to let your manager know and communicate that like I'm unavailable to do this right now. And I know that there are certain scenarios or jobs or instances where that's not possible. And if that is the case, I would recommend that you really dig deep on like, is this the life and career path that I want and am I willing to make the sacrifices in my personal life to pursue this? The answer could be yes, in which case continue on, but like don't complain about it. And if the answer is no, then use that information to change your career path. Very important to know that you and only you are in control of your career, you are in control of your future, you are in control of the decisions you make and 
that is an incredibly empowering reminder that if you don't like the direction that you are going, you and only you have the power to change it. It may not be easy. It may not be immediate, but it is in your hands. And that's an incredibly important thing to remember. I say this a lot and I'm going to continue to say it, but like you have control over your life. You own your money. You own your career. You own your decisions. And if you choose not to, that's an issue. Um, And honestly, nobody can help you. So you're the only person who can help yourself. But I guess to get back to some tactical things, how to make a life outside of my job, it really boils down to boundaries. You have to set a boundary. And in the time that you have that's free outside of work, use it. This is another thing I see a lot of, especially with friends and stuff. Like, And I, I understand. I want to preface this by saying I understand. Like, I've been there. I am there. I get it. But a lot of times people think they're a lot more important at work than they actually are. And as a result, they're like, well, I have to go into the office four days a week. Like I have to do this. I have to do that. Like, or, you know, I'm so tired because I work eight to six. And then after work, I'm so tired. I don't have the energy to do anything. Like if your job is sucking the life out of you, get a new damn job, like get another job because a no company, no job, no career path is worth continuously sacrificing your free time for, for one and two, You're going to be really disappointed if you don't set that boundary and don't prioritize doing things outside of work, even if you're tired. So like, for example, I have friends who like, you know, obviously we all work different jobs and LA is a hard city to be social in because it's just hard to get around, especially between the hours of five and seven. And honestly, even four, I would say four and eight, really the traffic is just unbearable, especially if you have to go across town. But like, we'll make plans and people will bail because they're like too tired after work. And I'm just like... I get it. We're all tired. But like, if you want to have a life, if you want to foster friendships, if you want to make new friends, if you want to date, like you've got to push through that and you've got to find a way to balance your work where you're not ending every single day completely exhausted to the point where the only thing you have energy for is to go home and like make dinner and go to bed. That's really not, I think, a valuable life to live in perpetuity. Again, I'm going to go back and say there are seasons of life where that happens, but it shouldn't be more than a year or two at a time. And if you find that you've been in that perpetual cycle, you have to audit what you're doing. You have to look at what are my priorities? How is my job either aiding or distracting from what I want out of my personal life? And what steps can I take to alleviate that? That could be setting boundaries with your manager. That could be setting boundaries with yourself and keeping them. Like a lot of times your manager doesn't care if you sign off at five, but you care because you want to be green on Teams or on Slack. Like be okay with, you know, not being 110% best employee 110% of the time. Sometimes that's the issue. Um, And if, if the answer isn't solvable from your work, like, Start taking action steps to find a different job. Again, it may not be immediate. It may not be the easiest thing ever, but it is possible. And you really have to make that decision. So those would be my like tough love, tough love tips for that. Next question. I have two more. How do you make friends post-college when moving to a new place? Friends of friends. That's how I made all of my friends in LA. I came to LA. I had one friend that I knew lived here. And at the exact time that I moved here, she got a boyfriend. So I was kind of on my own. I ended up living with a roommate who, you know, helped me get out of my shell a little bit and go out more. I didn't really make tons of friends through her, but she and I are friends. 
And then I reconnected with older friends that I had in Boston or friends of friends that I had in Boston. So one of my friends who is like one of my closest best friends now in LA, but just in general, was actually the roommate and friend of one of my closest work friends that I met in Boston. And she ended up moving, she was living in Boston and then she ended up moving out here, the, the roommate. And she and I became really close friends and then I met friends through her. And then through another one of my college friends, I was connected with a different person who you know, introduced me to other friends. And you kind of just have to put yourself out there, reach out, make plans, be available outside of work, even if you're tired, that's another big instance, is like, if you're starting a new job right out of school, you're gonna be tired. You've gotta prioritize social life if you do wanna make friends. Making friends takes time, so be patient with yourself. Like, you're not gonna make an immediate best friend overnight, especially as an adult, because people have other priorities too. Whereas I feel like in college, it was a lot easier to make friends based off of proximity living in dorms and like everyone's priority is to be social and make friends in college where out of college like people's priorities are work or people's priorities are their partners or people have just you know different ways of balancing their life or they already have friends or maybe they're going through a season where they don't want to make new friends or there's just everything's different after college so if you want to make friends you need to prioritize that as something in your life and you need to make the time for it And don't be afraid to reach out to people. Don't be afraid to follow up. Don't be afraid, like don't feel like you're being annoying by asking someone if they want to grab coffee or if, you know, they're free for dinner after work or if they want to go on a walk or something. Like people are flattered when you reach out to them. And if, you know, you reach out to someone a couple of times and it doesn't feel reciprocated, then you know, you don't have to prioritize that anymore. But I I see a lot of people struggle because they're afraid to reach out or afraid to be the first person to reach out because they don't want to seem annoying. But, you know, I look back to a lot of my friendships. Like anytime somebody asked me to hang out, I was like, oh my gosh, you want to hang out with me? Like, absolutely. And same goes with, you know, when I would reach out to people, they'd be like, it was so nice to hear from you. So just like, don't be afraid to do that. And the last question here is how are you figuring out your capsule wardrobe? I also have a whole podcast episode about this. I have a lot of podcast episodes that answer a lot of these questions I've talked about today in detail. My capsule wardrobe has been an ongoing journey, but I would say a couple of things. One is find a style of clothes that you're comfortable in. So for me, I'm a pants gal. I don't really love wearing dresses and skirts. I have a lot of jeans and a lot of pants. So I've found cuts of pants that work for me. And then find a color scheme. So I'm a neutrals, black and white kind of person. I don't wear a lot of color. I think in a capsule wardrobe too, too much color can be hard to really create a capsule wardrobe. Um, And then also find your places that you like to shop with clothes and cuts that fit you. I love Abercrombie. I think Abercrombie has really great basics. And I also love the store Oak and Fort. I think they also have really great basics. And then accessorize with different trendy pieces. So I just bought a belt. I buy funky shoes. I love different styles of sports sneakers. I have a couple of cool jackets. Like those are the things that you want to like splurge on with trendy pieces that are trendy and classic at the same time. Like a nice jacket, a nice leather bomber jacket or something of the like. Like those are pieces that can add a lot to your style that you can use seasonally, if that makes sense. So go listen to that capsule wardrobe episode if you're curious, because there is like a formula to it. Okay, I'm wrapping this episode up because it was way longer than I wanted. Hopefully, if you made it this far, you got something out of it. Definitely some tough love in here, but 
objectively, hopefully you're learning something. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, go leave me a review. You can get $10 off the personal finance dashboard using the code podcast one, and I will catch you in the next one.